Last week we looked at the plagues of Egypt and we looked at how the plagues were structured in three plagues or three plagues of three for the first nine plagues and then the tenth plague and we left off last week in chapter 11 where God was telling Moses about the tenth plague. And then, the, of course, the tenth plague is the death of all of the firstborn uh, in Egypt. That because of, uh, number one, because of the enslavery of God's people, because of uh, Pharaoh at the beginning of the book of Exodus, uh, told the Hebrew midwives to uh, kill all the firstborn males. Uh, of course, they did not do that. And then he put out an edict to uh, throw all of the male children uh, of the Israelites into the Nile River and drown them. And God said, because of that, I will require your firstborn son and that he would go through the land of Egypt and he would cause the death of the firstborn children in Egypt. Now, to, uh, to show protection over his people, the Israelites in the land, he would make a provision for them of how they could stay safe during this horrible 10th plague. And we're going to read about that today in what we call the Passover. I was hoping to pick up a little bit of steam and cover the Passover, plus the Exodus and the Red Sea crossing up into Mount Sinai. I quickly realized that was not going to happen. Uh, so our focus today is just going to be on the Passover. So the chapters we're going to look at is from chapter 12, verse 1, through chapter 13, verse number 16. Uh, and what we'll find out is when we're reading about the other plagues, you know, we spent uh, basically from chapters um, 7, verse number 14, all the way through chapter 10 on the nine plagues. Of course, chapter 11 is um, the announcement of the 10th plague. But the focus of this section and this chapter from chapter 12 on through chapter 13, verse 16 even though it contains the actual 10th plague, the story here is really about the Passover. Uh, if you notice that the Passover is the focus of this section, and the 10th plague really here only serves as a background to the Passover. Of course, chapter 11 is spent preparing for the 10th plague. But if you look over in Exodus chapter 12 and verse 29, you really only get one verse that describes the 10th plague and then a couple of verses of Pharaoh's response to that. So if you look over in Exodus chapter 12, verse 29, it says, At midnight the Lord struck down all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the captive, who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of the livestock. And that's the 10th plague. Uh, so you have this great buildup with all these other plagues, and the actual description of the 10th plague is this one verse. Then in verses 30 and 31, you have uh, kind of Pharaoh's response to this. And in verse 30, it says, Pharaoh rose up in the night, he and all of his servants and all the Egyptians, and there was a great cry in Egypt, for there was not a house where someone was not dead. Then he summoned Moses and Aaron by night and said, Up, go from among my people both you and the people of Israel, and go, serve the Lord as you have said. Take your flocks and your herds as you have said, and be gone, 
and bless me also. So that is the actual description there of the 10th plague. Uh, really one verse about the plague, just stating what happened. And, but you've got the rest of chapter 12 uh, from verses 1 to 28 and 33 through 51. And then, you know, from chapter 13, 1 to 13, 16, describes the Passover that happened around the place. So we, we kind of read this seeing that even though we have this great buildup to the 10th plague, the narrator here, or, or the, 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 the story is not really so much about the plague. It's about the Israelite response to the plague through the Passover. And that's the main point. So the 10th the plague here really serves the, serves the story of the Passover and uh, the unleavened bread as well. So uh, the final plague announced in chapter 11 um, does not follow immediately in the story. We has, instead, beginning of verse 12, we have these instructions from the Lord. And um, when you're reading chapter 12 and 13, it kind of jumps in and out on some subjects. So you can kind of wonder, you know, kind of where you're at. So I wanted to structure out chapters 12 through 13, 16 for us that will know what we're reading when we're reading it. Because you have sections where God instructs Moses and he'll give instructions. And then Moses, a little bit later, will turn around and he'll instruct the people. So you think you're kind of reading the same thing, but one is where God is instructing Moses and then where Moses is instructing the people. So let's kind of look at this structure um, beginning in chapter 12. So if you notice chapter 12, 1 through 13, that is where God instructs Moses and Aaron concerning preparations and regulations for the Passover. So when you read those first 13 verses, God is instructing Moses about what's going to happen in the Passover and how they should prepare, how they should prepare the lamb. And we'll look at that in more detail in just a moment. And then when you get to verse number 14 through verse number 20, then you have God instructing Moses and Aaron concerning the feast of the unleavened bread. Uh, they ate unleavened bread in the Passover because they were eating this Passover meal in a hurry because they were going to up and leave Egypt in a hurry. And they didn't have time to, to put the leaven and wait for that to cook in the bread, so they had unleavened bread. And this would serve, along with the Passover meal, as a commemoration of this event on throughout the ages. So beginning in verse 14 through verse 20 of chapter 12, God is instructing Moses and Aaron concerning this feast of the unleavened bread that they would keep. Then when we come down to verse number 21, verse 21 begins, Then Moses called the elders of Israel and said to them. And then Moses here in verses 21 through 28 of chapter 12, Moses is instructing the people. I guess so much for that Moses can't talk to people uh, because now Moses is talking to uh, the elders here. So in verses 21 through 28, Moses is telling the people what God had previously told him. So we went from Passover regulations to the unleavened bread, what's going to happen after they get out of the Passover. Then you jump back into Moses telling the elders about what's going to happen in the Passover. Then in chapter 12, verse 29 through 31, we have what we just previously read with the 10th plague. 
and Pharaoh's response telling Israel to get up and to leave. In chapter 12, 33 through 42, the Israelites leave. And they take the silver and gold that they previously had. Um, They basically plundered the Egyptians on the way out. And they depart to Sokoth with the Egyptians' gold and silver, thus ending their 430 years in Egypt. If you look in chapter 12 and verse 40, it says the time that the people of Israel lived in Egypt was 430 years. At the end of 430 years on that very day, all the hosts of the Lord went up out from the land of Egypt. So you have here this, the 10th plague, Pharaoh's response, and then the people leaving with Egypt's gold and silver and leaving the land of Egypt. Then in verses 43 through 51, we jump back into additional Passover um, regulations and instructions. However, this time the Lord instructs Moses and Aaron concerning the Passover with regard to strangers and foreigners and how strangers and foreigners um, would either not be able to keep the Passover or exemptions for those who could keep the Passover. So chapter 12, verses 43 through 51 may seem a little bit out of place because they've already left, but God is telling them about the Passover. This could be future as well. But anyway, you you jump back from the story into this little section about regulations uh, about eating the Passover. Then you go into chapter 13 in verses 1 and 2. You have Moses commanding, or God commanding Moses to consecrate about the consecration of all the firstborn males and the animals to the Lord. So you have two verses there about God tells Moses to consecrate to me all the firstborn, whether it's uh, male or animal. The firstborn belongs to God. Then in verse number 3 through 10, you have Moses instructs the people concerning the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So now we go back into the regulations of unleavened bread. So before, in chapter 12, verses 14 through 20, God is instructing Moses about the feast. Then in chapter 13, Moses is instructing the people about the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So you just got to get the picture because it's kind of just sectioned out here. God instructs Moses about the Passover. God instructs Moses about unleavened bread. Moses instructs the people about Passover. Then you have a little bit of the story, a little bit more Passover regulation. Then God instructs the people about the unleavened bread. Then in chapter 13, 11 through 16, Moses instructs the people concerning the consecration of the firstborn. That was mentioned in verses 1 and 2. So these couple of chapters, if you're reading it, can be a little bit choppy, you know, so it's good to just, I wanted to put this structure here so that you can, you know, see what section you're reading and, you know, if you've read that before, why are you reading it again? Well, because the first time God said it to Moses, the second time Moses said it to God, and then just these little kind of interludes here, verses 43 through 51 in chapter 12 about the strangers and the foreigners, and then you have the first two verses of chapter 13 that you take a break to talk about unleavened bread and then jump back into that principle in verse number 11 of chapter 13. So, you know, when you read this, just go through so you'll kind of see exactly what's going on because, you know, it is a little bit choppy when you're trying to read about what's going on because of all of the interruptions and instructions. Then you have a little bit of story and then you have some more instructions and 
So that's what we're reading when we read it. So let's dig into some of these details. So the two major issues we're dealing with here is the Passover and unleavened bread. So the tenth and the last plague brought the death of the firstborn and the long-awaited permission for Israel to leave Egypt. To escape the plagues themselves, the Israelite households were instructed to sacrifice a lamb and smear the blood on the doorpost of each house. The sacrifice of the Passover lamb, as well as the Feast of Unleavened Bread, was celebrated annually in commemoration of this dramatic rescue. So what we're dealing with in these chapters is you're dealing with the event of the Passover that happened on the night that the death angel went into Egypt and took the life of the firstborn. The people of Israel were commanded to take a lamb, to roast it, to eat it, to take the blood and to smear it on top and the sides of their doors for their protection. Then God will instruct them that from year to year, they were to have a feast that would commemorate and remember this event. God wanted them to remember for generations to come when he set them free from the land of Egypt. So you have the Passover event, and then you're going to have the instructions for them to celebrate the Passover as a feast, along with a feast called the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Again, commemorating when they had to eat this meal in haste, very quickly, that they didn't have time for the leaven to work in the bread, so they had to have unleavened bread. And so the Feast of Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread were to be commemorated every year in a feast. Um, it's probably started out as two separate feasts later on. They would probably be combined into one feast. But so that's what we're dealing with. We're dealing with this commemoration and we're dealing with the act here that took place in Exodus. So the second paragraph under Passover and Unleavened Bread uh, this plague, there were special instructions for the Israelites with regard to the sparing of the firstborn sons. The key provision was the sacrifice of a year old lamb or goat and the application of the blood to the sides and tops of the door frames of the houses. That was the that was the pinnacle. Take the lamb, put the blood over the doorpost. That would spare that household from the death of the firstborn. For God was requiring the life of the firstborn in every household. But when, when you see the blood over the doors, they passed over the house because they had seen that a death had already taken place there. But the death that had taken place in the houses of the ones with the blood over the doors, it wasn't the blood of the firstborn, it was the blood of the substitute. They took a lamb and substituted the lamb for the firstborn, sacrificed the lamb, applied his blood, and that indicated that a death had already taken place in the house, and the lamb was substituted for the firstborn. So they were to put the blood, they were to eat the meat along with bitter herbs and bread made without yeast or leaven. The, when the Lord passed over each house and saw the blood, he would not permit the destroying angel to strike down the firstborn son. 
As in the case of the ram that was sacrificed in the place of Isaac. Remember, Isaac was getting ready to be sacrificed. And the Lord stopped Abraham. And he looked back and there was a ram caught in the thicket. And they sacrificed the ram in the place of Isaac. The substitutionary nature of the Passover lamb must have been quite clear to the firstborn sons and their families. They knew that if the lamb was not killed, the oldest son would die. A son who had a privileged position in the family. So that's, in essence, the Passover. Then closely associated with the Passover was the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which began on the next day and continued to the 21st of the month. It's what would celebrate from the 14th day of the month to the 21st day of the month would be this Feast of Unleavened Bread. Since the people had to leave Egypt quickly, they did not have time to bake dough with yeast. In verse 8, the bread without yeast is eaten along with the bitter herbs, a reminder of the hard labor they had been required to perform. As this feast was celebrated from year to year, parents reminded children about their bitter experiences in Egypt. And together they gave thanks for God's deliverance. Down through the years, the feast of Passover and unleavened bread virtually became one feast. The Passover and unleavened bread would be feasts that would be kept in Israel for generations. These, along with the consecration of the firstborn of males and animals in chapter 13, would be a testimony for their children of what God had done for them in the Exodus. So God would tell them, you know, when you do these things in the future and your children ask, what do these mean? You will be able to share with them how God delivered your ancestors from slavery out of the hand of Egypt through his power and through his mighty acts. And it was to be a way to teach your children about what happened here in the book of Exodus. So thus the story of the Passover, the Exodus story of the Passover, is really about the importance of the past for later generations. Connecting the past to their present is what drove ancient scribes to take the time to write all of this down in the first place so it could be remembered and passed on. The Passover ceremony will be kept, will keep the memory alive. So that's probably why you have more emphasis here on the Passover and the unleavened bread and the consecration of the firstborns, then you do what happened in the actual uh, Passover or 10th plague itself, when we only have one verse, essentially, that describes the plague. But surrounding that one verse is all of these instructions, it's all of these details, all of these preparations, all of these regulations, all of these future instructions. Uh, so you can kind of see here that you know, where our purpose was telling about what was going on and how God was judging Egypt and how God was showing his power. Now it seems that we're kind of having an emphasis on the future and keeping this story alive and keeping the commemoration of what God did for his people alive for generations to come. Uh, which this would be so important because this was a feast again they would keep year to year. Um, we have here, as far as the Old Testament is concerned, the Passover is the most important festival in the religious calendar, for it marks the founding moment in national history when Israel emerged as a separate nation. The month in which it fell is therefore declared the first month of the year to the Israelites. 
and all circumcised Israelites and their families were bound to keep it. So this would be one of the pinnacle festivals and feast days that Israel would keep for years to come, commemorating what God did. And this is our identity as a people. You know, this was our Independence Day. You know, we still celebrate Independence Day uh, here in America. I guess we do, but I guess we will, you know, this year. But, you know, traditionally we've celebrated Independence Day as the day that we obtained our independence from, from Britain. And so this is their Independence Day. This is when they officially left Egypt and became a nation and became a free people and how God delivered them. So this would be the first of months for them. This would be commemorated every year. And that seems to be the focus here in these chapters. Um, Not necessarily every detail that happened on the 10th plague. So the 10th plague serves, first of all, as it serves the story of the Passover And it serves how Israel gets out of Egypt. So now let's go back and look at some of the details of the Passover. Uh, The two scriptures, um, I've got them bullet pointed here, uh, so we don't have to necessarily go back and reread everything. But the regulations for the Passover takes place in chapter 12, 1 through 11. And then you have that section over in uh, verse 43 through 51 about the strangers and the foreigners. So all of these bullet points are taken from what happens here in Exodus chapter 12 in these two sections of scriptures. Um, It begins in chapter 12, 1. uh, This is where the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be for you a beginning of months, for it shall be the first month of the year for you. To all the congregation of Israel on the tenth day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according uh, to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. If the household is too small for a lamb, he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons, according to what each can eat, you shall make account for the lamb. So here are the regulations back over on on our paper. So you see how detailed, oriented God is in sharing these regulations with Moses and Aaron. Now, God's going to get a whole lot more detailed when we get later on in Exodus, when we get to the tabernacle and the instructions for the tabernacle. So one thing you can say about Exodus is very detailed-oriented. God is very specific in communicating what He wants from His people. Why is God so specific about what He wants from His people? Well, because everything is going to speak. Everything is going to speak to the future. And when we're reading this, and we're going to discuss this in the next section, but when we're reading this, it's going to point us to the ultimate reality, and that is Christ. So that's why God is so detailed-oriented with the regulations for the Passover. And then if you think, this section's fun, wait till we get to the other sacrifices in the law. We talk about all these other sacrifices, and then we get to the priesthood and what the priesthood wore, and when we get to the, the tabernacle. So we're going to get into a lot of details you know, when we talk about these things. So here are the regulations for the Passover. Every man shall take a lamb for his household, a lamb for a household. The lamb shall be without blemish. They were to take the lamb, inspect the lamb to make sure there were no defects, no blemishes. It was to be an acceptable 
perfect lamb to sacrifice. The lamb must be a male, and it must be one year old. They must keep the lamb from the 10th day to the 14th day. So they take the lamb on the 10th day, they keep it to the 14th day. And then on the 14th day, the whole assembly shall kill and eat the lambs at twilight. In the evening, they shall kill and eat the lamb. They shall put the blood on the sides and tops of the door frames of each house. They shall eat it in one night. They shall eat it roasted with fire. And they shall eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. Roast it with fire. Consume as a, as a whole burnt offering. The unleavened bread symbolized the quickness they were supposed to eat it with because they were getting ready to leave. And the bitter herbs that they ate with was a reminder of all the years of their hard labor. So everything has a picture here. They were not to eat any of it raw, or they were not to boil it in water. They were supposed to roast it with fire, all of it. They shall roast the whole animal, including the head, legs, and internal organs. None of it shall remain until the morning. They shall eat it all in one night. Any remaining must be burned with fire. They shall eat it in haste, with their belts fastened, their sandals on their feet, and a staff in their hand. Because when God does what he does, and Pharaoh says, you got to go, they had to go. I don't know how well that would work in my house with three ladies trying to get ready. It's hard enough to get them to go to school every morning after being up for two hours. But anyway, they had to go very quickly. And then um, you go over to verses 43 through 50, and these are the instructions there. No foreigner may eat uh, of it, that should be it, uh, except for a purchased slave and sojourners who wanted to travel with them who were circumcised. Uh, no uncircumcised person shall eat of it. They must eat it all in the house, not outside of the house. They shall not break any of its bones. And all of Israel had to participate in the Passover. So these two sections together show us all of the regulations of the preparation here in the Passover lamb. So all of this points toward the future. So for this section, we want to talk about the Passover and Christ. Because ultimately, along with remembering for the nation of Israel, the beginnings of their nation when they came out of Egypt, uh, what God did in the power of the, the Egyptian plagues, further on than that, the Passover serves a greater New Testament purpose. For we find Passover imagery scattered all throughout the New Testament, in the Gospels and in the Epistles as well. Uh, so we've listed a few of these uh, down here. There are many references, pictures, allusions of the Passover in the New Testament. Uh, one of the first pictures that we'll look at, and I didn't write all of these down here, but the first one is leaven. 
Leaven is used on several occasions in the Bible. First of all, leaven is used um, generally, not in every instance in the New Testament. But in the instances where it is used as this way, it's used as a picture of sin. Or used as a picture as in Luke chapter 12. In Luke chapter 12, Jesus tells the people to beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. So the Pharisees had religious hypocrisy, and Jesus called their hypocrisy leaven, for they were mixing their traditions um, on top of what God had said the people, bringing the people into a form of religious bondage. And Jesus called that, Jesus said this was leaven and references it to sin. Now, not every instance of leaven is used as sin. When Jesus in Matthew, I believe it's 13, is given the parables of the kingdom, he said the kingdom of heaven is like leaven. So in that instance, leaven is a positive thing. Jesus says in Matthew, the kingdom of heaven is like leaven that is hid in a meal. You put it in the meal, it's hidden there and it's working, and then it begins to expand until the whole is leaven. And Jesus is saying that's how the kingdom of God works. The kingdom of God does not come with observation. The kingdom of God is within you. The kingdom of God is among you. The kingdom of God is in the world, but it's hidden like leaven. But even though it's not out in the forefront, it's working and it's expanding and it's, it's growing and the gospel is being preached and people are coming. So in Matthew 13, Jesus uses leaven, but he uses it as how leaven works. It's hidden in a meal and it expands until the whole is filled. So in that instance, Jesus uses leaven as a good thing. But in other instances, leaven, like here, is used as a negative thing for sin. Uh, in continuing the references to leaven as sin, Paul says over in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, in the last part of chapter verse 6 and the first part of verse 7, Paul says this, speaking about sexual immorality in the church. He says, do you not know that a little leaven leavens the whole lump? So if you put a little bit of leaven, then it affects the whole lump. So he's saying there's a little bit of the sexual immorality, but it will end up affecting something much larger. So he instructs them to cleanse out the old leaven. And that's one of the instructions for unleavened bread. Um, I should have done that with, with the Passover lamb, but, but I didn't for whatever reason. Um, you know, when they were to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread for seven days, they were to clean all the leaven out of their houses. They weren't, they weren't supposed to have any leaven in their house at all. And they were supposed to clean it out, get rid of it, for seven days when they're celebrating the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So Paul is saying just like they had to clean out, the Israelites had to clean out their houses of leaven to celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread, he says, clean out the old leaven from your lives or from the church, your, this sin, that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. So he says, get rid of the old leaven because... That's not who you are anymore. You are a unleavened, unaffected, a pure piece, uh, a new lump of dough. So he's saying, now that you've been made new, unleavened, no sin, forgiven of sin, clean out these, these acts. So 
just a, a side note, I, I, when Paul is dealing with people's sins, and in, especially in the church, when he's dealing with, with people's sins and he's dealing with flesh, because we all still have flesh, you know, we all still have you know, desires and temptations even after we become Christians. But he appeals to overcome those things and get rid of those things out of our lives because of what Christ has done for us. So he says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened. And he says, you are unleavened because he goes on to say this at the end of verse number 7 of 1 Corinthians 5. He says, for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So it says, clean out the old leaven that you may be a new lump as you really are unleavened for Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. So there refers, Paul refers to Christ as our Passover lamb, the one who was sacrificed, our substitute in our place, the one who was substituted in our place. He then goes on in that verse, in verse number 8, to instruct the Corinthians to celebrate the festival, the feast of unleavened bread, not with old leaven, the leaven of malice and evil, but with the unleavened bread of sincerity and truth. So Paul uses the illustration of the feast of unleavened bread as a metaphor for living our lives apart from sinful ways because Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed for our sin. So Paul takes the feast of unleavened bread and just brings it into a whole new context for New Testament Christians. So he tells these Corinthians, who, by the way, do not celebrate the feast of unleavened bread, he tells them to beware of the little leaven that affects the whole lump. Get rid of the old leaven because you've been made unleavened through Christ's sacrifice. So therefore, celebrate the feast, not with the old leaven of your old life, but with the unleavened bread of your new life. And celebrating the feast there is not... That, that, that's, that's, Paul uses this as a metaphor for living your life. That every day we're supposed to be living our lives as a celebration that the, the old leaven is gone and we've been made a new loaf of unleavened bread, pure, free from the impurities because of Christ our Passover lamb. So Paul brings this language and brings this festival from Exodus all the way into the New Testament and applies it to the Gentiles. So that's, you know, that's really exciting stuff. Um, then um, Peter, uh, Peter refers to Christ as a lamb without blemish or defect, without spot or blemish in 1 Peter chapter 1, verse 19. The apostle John noted in John 19.36 that in Christ's death on the cross, that none of his bones were broken. He notes that none of his bones were broken because you were not to break any of the bones of the Passover lamb in Exodus. Uh, he does this to make a connection between Christ's sacrifice and Passover crystal clear. The Gospels tell us that Christ died shortly after observing the Passover with his disciples. So Jesus died on Passover after celebrating the Passover with his disciples. So there's your immediate connection there that Christ was sacrificed at this, at this time. 
Um, John the Baptist, as we talked about this on Sunday, John the Baptist declares that Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So that phrase, the Lamb of God, harkens exactly back to the Lamb that they were supposed to take on the Passover. Jesus' sacrifice would make atonement for the sin as He would be our substitute, shedding His blood that our lives would be saved. And through the purpose of the shedding of Christ's blood, which I wanted to get into more details, but then I remember we have chapters and chapters about sacrifices and shedding blood in the future, so we're going to save all that. But without the shedding of blood, there's no remission of sin. So when Christ's blood is symbolically covering our lives as our substitute, then we are free from sin and death and its penalty and therefore experience salvation. You know, and even that word salvation, when we think about salvation, you know, in a lot of evangelical contexts, we have made salvation just this, do you want to be saved so that you'll go to heaven when you die, which is certainly, you know, the end of our salvation. But salvation, the very connotation of it, comes out of Exodus. For the word salvation comes from the word to deliver, deliverance. Through Christ's sacrifice, God delivered us out of sin, Satan, death, our old life of being a slave to sin. He sets us free from that. When we were slaves to sin, He made us free. When we were under the power of Satan, when we were under the power of the kingdom of darkness, He set us free. When we were condemned under the penalty of sin, for the wages of sin is death, the gift of God is eternal life. So salvation, when we are saved, when Christ becomes our Passover lamb, we are set free. From the hand of Satan, we're translated out of the power of the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his dear son. Our sin is taken out of the way so that our sin is not held and counted against us. So it frees us from the, from, from the, the, the hold and the dominion of sin over our lives. Romans says, for you are free from, from sin, that you are free from sin to serve God. It brings us out of our old life where we, whereby we were held captive by a sinful nature. and We've been set free from that and brought out of that into a new life as a new creation. Um, just like they were brought out of Egypt, out of the hand of Pharaoh, out from the hard labors that they were under. That's where God saved His people. Israel here is experiencing... I'm getting ahead of myself because I said I weren't going to talk about them leaving Egypt, but it's here in chapter 12 in the Exodus, but that's, God saved His people. That was national salvation. Bloodshed, people free, that's salvation. So God saved His people. So even salvation in the Old Testament was God's gift of grace to them. God's gift of grace to them. That was their salvation. So God brought them out on the basis of a shed blood of a sacrificial lamb. God saved them and brought them and delivered them. 
out of Egypt. And that's the basis for new covenant salvation, that through the shed blood of a lamb, however, this lamb wasn't our doing, it's he did it for us. We just receive what he has done for us on Calvary's cross. And he saves us from our sin, he forgives us, takes our sin out of the way. Brings us out of being a a sinner into being a saint. Brings us out of the dominion and the hand of Satan and the dominion of sin and brings us into righteousness. It's a beautiful picture and sets us free so that we are to live free. So that's why Paul is saying, Christ has made you free. He saved you. You don't have to be a slave to these sinful natures and desires. So put away that old stuff you know, that still resides from our flesh. Put that away because that's not who you are anymore. I've made you a new creation in Christ Jesus. I've put my spirit within you. I've, I've finished the work on your behalf. Now continue to live and do out of that new life, not the life I've delivered you from. Leave that life back there. Continue to move forward. Continue to live in the freedom that Christ has set us free for. So this is a picture of salvation. So I'll add that in there so I don't add it in next week. So there we go. Now our final page here, I've listed, well I took this from from a book, but we've listed here 12 amazing similarities between Jesus and the Passover lamb. Uh, So number one, four days. A lamb had to be chosen and brought into the house four days before the Passover. Four days before his death on the cross, on the eve of Passover, Jesus came into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, Number two, the lamb had to be without blemish. Uh, No cuts, bruises, deformities. Jesus was without blemish, symbolizing that Jesus was the spotless and perfect Lamb of God. Jesus, again, was inspected by by Pilate and by the courts. And he walks out and he says, I find no fault in this man. But they still put him on a cross and crucified him. So Jesus, even after being inspected, uh, was found blameless. So Christ is the perfect sinless lamb fit to be sacrificed as a substitute for us. Number three, one year, the lamb was to be one year old in the prime of his life. Jesus was in the prime of his life when he was sacrificed as a young man, 33 years old. Uh, The lamb had to be a male. Jesus came to earth as a man. Uh, Number five, everyone, every house of each family had to have their own lamb. Everyone has to open their own heart for what Jesus has done for them and personally accept him as Lord and Savior. The 14th day, the Passover lamb was slain on the eve of Passover on the 14th day of uh, Nisan, which is the first month of the Jewish calendar. Jesus is the lamb that was sacrificed at the same time the lambs were being killed on the 14th day of the first month. Number seven, broken bones. The Israelites weren't allowed to break the bones of the lamb, not during cooking or eating. Jesus' bones didn't get broken during his torture and the mockery he endured over the crucifixion. Number eight, no leftovers. The lamb had to be consumed entirely on the eve of the Passover. Nothing was to remain overnight. Jesus, after his death, was taken off the cross the same evening, although this wasn't customary. So everything was done in this one time frame. Uh, The firstborn, the lamb died in the place of the firstborn of the Israelites. Jesus died in our place. He was the firstborn 
among many brethren. He died on the cross in order to reunite or reconcile us with God. Number 10, blood. The Israelites had to sprinkle the blood of the lamb on the doorpost as a sign to God. Whoever stayed in the house behind the blood of the lamb was safe from God's judgment against the Egyptians. Whoever stays with Jesus and does his will, the blood of Jesus will keep them safe from judgment. Number 11, freedom. The lamb opened the way to freedom from the Jews from years of slavery. And each of Jesus' sacrifice sets us free from the bondage of sin. Consumed, the lamb, had, the lamb had to be consumed entirely on the eve of Passover. We have to get Jesus into our lives, consume his word. Uh, we also drink of the wine or grape juice to symbolize his blood and eat the unleavened bread, a symbol of his flesh during the Lord's Supper. Jesus said, unless you eat my flesh and drink my blood, you have no part in me. So we have all of this symbolism. So we see how Jesus fulfills these pictures here of this Passover lamb. So two, you know, two reasons here that we see this. Well, three reasons. First of all is the historical reason that this Passover happened to get Israel out of Egypt into the promised land, to make them a free country. Uh, number two, this happened as a remembrance. It was for the Israelites for generation after generation to remember these events through the Feast of Passover, and through the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And the third reason for this is to point us to Jesus Christ, how we can see Jesus fulfilling these scriptures as the Passover lamb to bring us salvation, not from physical Egypt, but from spiritual Egypt and spiritual and sin and our spiritual Pharaoh.